Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg, and I'm here to read to you the Dvar Torah for Parshat Yitro. The title is, What Happened at Sinai? From Revelation to Entering the Covenant in Love. In Parshat Yitro, the Israelites reached the desert of Sinai and camped at the bottom of the mountain. Later tradition and Jewish thinkers in general have focused on the Sinai experience as an event of receiving revelation. The rabbis redefined Shavuot as Man Matan Torotenu, the time of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. But no less important, the mountain was also the site of Israel signing on to the covenant, to this covenant of the Torah for all time. The focus on Revelation, sometimes referred to as Torah Mi Sinai, Torah from the Sinai, comes directly from our parsha. Yitro describes the three-day preparation, the whole people assembled, the stunning mix of thunder, lightning, heavy cloud, and the ever stronger blast of a shofar which rocked the mountain, and the mountain of flame, and the voice of God speaking the Ten Commandments. See all this, Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. A central teaching of rabbinic Judaism is that at Sinai not only the written scriptures were revealed, but the oral Torah, the initially not written down Torah of interpretation, expansion, and application of the five books of Moses. Uh, a side comment in books too numerous to list, Jacob Neusner describes rabbinic Judaism as the Judaism of the dual Torah, i.e. written and oral. The oral Torah interpretation may even override the plain meaning of the written scriptures. Thus, the Torah statement of Lex Talionis is, quote, an eye for an eye, i.e. knocking out another person's eye is punished by knocking out the criminal's eye. But the oral law interprets Exodus 21-24 that, quote, an eye for an eye, unquote, means money, payment, an eye's worth of money, not a literal physical retaliation for harming anyone. See on this the Talmud Bavakama 84a, and of course, for rabbinic Jews, the interpretation of money is the authoritative understanding of the words and not the plain meaning. So again, let me quote the understanding. The Torah, it says, quote, And I shall give you, Moses, the stone tablets, the Torah, and the commandment which I, God, wrote to teach them, i.e. Israel, which is Exodus 24.12. Here's the Gemara's comment. Quote, Tablets, these are the Ten Commandments. Torah, this is the written scriptures, and the commandment, this is the Mishnah, i.e. the core document of the Talmud, which gives rabbinic exposition of the Torah's laws and views, which I wrote, these refer to the prophetic book and the writings. Of course, I'm talking about Tanakh. The Bible consists of the Torah, five books of Moses, Nevi'im, prophetic books, and Ketuvim, writings such as Psalms, Eov, etc. And finally, to teach them, this is the Talmud, i.e. the later rabbinic interpretation, analysis, application, expansion of the mission. So they break this verse into all these specific elements and conclude, this verse teaches us that all the above, i.e. all the elements of the oral Torah, were given to Moses at Sinai. Close quote. See the Talmud Brachot, page 5a. I should add that in other places the Talmud adds the Agadah, the non-legal parts of the Talmud. 
rabbinic midrashim, etc., to the list of those revealed at Sinai. And for a discussion of the variable curriculum lists of rabbinic study, see Martin Jaffe's book, Torah in the Mouth. Now, there is an inherent difficulty in taking a fundamentalist reading that all the later books were revealed at Sinai. Literally, this would mean that all future prophets and teachers were not adding to and renewing the Torah. They were only like robots repeating words said long ago. The Talmud picks up on this analogy and tells an ironic narrative of Moses visiting the school of Rabbi Akiva who was expounding the Torah. Moses finds that he hardly understands a word is going on. He feels faint. This is the Talmud's acknowledgement that there is much innovation in later tradition. Then a student asks Rabbi Akiva, where did this law come from? Akiva explains, this is a law, i.e. oral tradition, received from Moses at Sinai. Moses brightens up. Of course, he gets the deeper point that is being made. The rabbis are carrying on and applying Moses' Torah and tradition in later times. The later articulated parts of Torah deserve similar authority and respect in our eyes as those written down in scriptures and all are attributed to Sinai. The rabbis insist that this process of revelation at Sinai never stops. The ultimate statement of ongoing Sinaitic revelation is the Talmud Yerushalmi's comment. Everything that a veteran student of Torah will express in the presence of his Rebbe teacher was already told to Moses at Sinai. See Talmud Yerushalmi Peah chapter 2 halacha 4. Yet, an exclusive focus on revelation misses the broader significance of what happened at Sinai. At this place, the Israelites as a people entered into the covenant of Tikkun Olam to repair the world and fill it with life. This commitment set the character of Judaism for the ages. At Sinai, the mission of Jewry that has made it a special chosen people in the world was defined. The birth of the national covenant then is what makes Sinai so central in our tradition. Our Pasha signals what is to happen at the mountain in the run-up to the Sinai Epiphany. God says, quote, You saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will hear my voice and observe my covenant, you will become my treasured people among the nations. See Exodus 19, verse 5. And what is the mission of this special covenanted people? Quote, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Among the people of Israel, the priests connect the people to God. They teach the people a Torah of truth. See the words of Malachi chapter 2, verse 6 which enables them to distinguish between the impure and the pure, see Leviticus 11, verse 47, and between the profane and the holy, and how to convert the realm of the profane, where the divine is hidden or obscured because it is in the presence of death, to convert to the realm of the holy, where the divine is present and manifest, and this is the realm where life is dominant. The priests, in their dedication of their whole lives to divine service, which includes having 
ethically clean hands and pure hearts, see the verse in Psalms 24, verse 4. They aim to create an ideal mini-world, which prefigures the future repaired earth. Similarly, in their personal physical perfection, the priests model and guide the people to building the universal ideal planet, where sickness and handicaps are overcome. For expansion of most of these points I'm making, see Jacob Milgram's masterpiece, Leviticus, Anchor Bible, pages 52-58, 42-51, 616-17, and throughout the volume. Also, see Shai Hell's essay on Parshat Bekudeh, Building a Home for God, which is printed in the Heart of Torah and available on Hadar's website. The Israelites becoming a kingdom of priests means that the entire nation will pay the above priestly roles for all of humanity. And, quote, a holy nation means that as a society, the whole people will embody and model the realm of the holy, where life and justice are dominant. Again, the goal is that the whole world will learn and build the model into the world at large. Next week's Torah portion, Mishpatim, however, confirms that the main activity during the rest of the time spent at Sinai was to enter the covenant. See Exodus chapter 25. The rest of the time was spent to study and plan the application of covenantal guidelines to all of life. Moses reads the book of the covenant to the entire people. The book of the covenant, see Exodus chapters 21 through 24. In effect, Moses outlines the behaviors and way of life which the Israelites undertake if they will enter the covenant. The book of the covenant makes clear that the Israelites were being asked to commit their entire life, not just to do an act or two. So this was the moment of truth. The people answered as one, quote, that which the Lord has said, we will do and we will listen. See Exodus 25, verse 16. They said, we will do first. They offered open-ended acceptance even before knowing all the details. The Talmud is electrified by this response. She Shabbat, pages 88a and b. Total acceptance represents profound trust. This is nothing less than a response of unconditional love. No matter what difficulties or problematic details may follow, it does not matter. We commit to the covenant. We will cope with whatever follows. How could people pledge their very lives to accept the burdens of a partnership without even knowing the details? The Talmud puts this legitimate skepticism into the mouth of a heretic. See Shabbat 88b. How could the Israelites commit before hearing out everything and assessing were they up to the levels of performance and obligation in the covenant? I add, speaking from the perspective of living after the Holocaust, the real question is, why do they not check out whether Jews or anyone could bear the isolation, the persecution, the hatred and violence which this world has inflicted on them for being carriers of the covenant over the centuries? Should they not have asked first what were the risks and costs of taking on this partnership with God? The answer clearly is, 
the Israelites committed out of recklessness, that is, the limitless passion of unconditional love. Never mind the failures, the regressions, the small-mindedness that they showed in the desert. At that moment, at Sinai, they were madly in love and heedless of future risks. This unlimited acceptance has gone a long way with their divine partner in overcoming failures along the historical journey. Jeremiah referred to this total commitment when he reassured the Israelites in his time that notwithstanding God's revulsion at their abuse, and notwithstanding allowing the destruction of the temple, God would never abandon Israel or the covenant. Quote, I remember for you the covenantal love of your youth, your love as a bride, when you followed me in the desert, in a trackless land not sown. See Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Sinai, then, is both the great moment of revelation and the beginning of the covenant of love. Actually, these are two sides of the same coin. Once we understand Sinai as the moment of setting out on a covenantal journey to realize Tikkun Olam, then the continuous revelation that speaks from Sinai has new meaning and realistic considerations. Applying the ethics or guiding principles along the way, adding ritual and reenactments of ancient and new events, seeing new meaning in traditional sources, or a better way of living by inherited models, all literally represent the revelation at Sinai occurring again and guiding the realization of the covenant. The new development may appear to be an innovation or change, but it's actually keeping the Sinai covenant alive and carrying it out. This is the profound paradoxical truth in the rabbinic statement, quote, Everything that a future veteran student innovates was told, i.e. meaning implicitly revealed, to Moses at Sinai. See the Chidushe Haran on Eruvin 16b.